Section 38 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D.H. Lawrence. Chapter 13, Part 2. The Man's World. Evening came. Her father returned home, sanguine and alert and detached as ever. He was less real than her fancies. She waited whilst he ate his tea. He took big mouthfuls, big bites, and ate unconsciously with the same abandon an animal gives its food. Immediately after tea, he went over to the church. It was choir practice, and he wanted to try the tunes on his organ. The latch of the big door clicked loudly as she came after him, but the organ rolled more loudly still. He was unaware. He was practicing the anthem. She saw his small jet-black head and alert face between the candle flames. His slim body sagged on the music stool. His face was so luminous and fixed, the movement of his limbs seemed strange, apart from him. The sound of the organ seemed to belong to the very stone of the pillars, like sap running in them. Then there was a close of music and silence. Father, she said. He looked round as if at an apparition. Ursula stood shadowily within the candlelight. What now, he said, not coming to earth. It was difficult to speak to him. I've got a situation, she said, forcing herself to speak. You've got what? He answered, unwilling to come out of his mood of organ playing. He closed the music before him. I've got a situation, too. Then he turned to her, still abstracted, unwilling. Oh, what's that, he said, at Kingston on Thames. I must go on Thursday for an interview with the committee. You must go Thursday? Yes. And she handed him the letter. He read it by the light of the candles. Ursula Brangwen, Yew Tree Cottage, Cosseltay, Derbyshire. Dear Madam, you are requested to call at above offices on Thursday next, the 10th, at 11.30 a.m. for an interview with the committee referring to your application for the post of assistant mistresses at the Wellington Borough Green Schools. It was very difficult for Brangwen to take in this remote and official information, glowing as he was within the quiet of his church and his anthem music. Well, you needn't bother me with it now, need you? He said impatiently, giving her back the letter. I've got to go Thursday, she said. He sat motionless. Then, he reached more music, and there was a rushing sound of air, then a long, emphatic trumpet note of the organ as he laid his hands on the keys. Ursula turned and went away. He tried to give himself again to the organ, but he could not. He could not get back. All the time, a short of string was tugging, tugging him elsewhere miserably, so that when he came into the house after choir practice, his face was dark and his heart black. He said nothing, however, until all the younger children were in bed. Ursula, however, knew what was brewing. At length, he asked, where's that letter? She gave it to him. He sat looking at it. You are requested to call at the above offices on Thursday next. It was a cold official notice to Ursula herself and had nothing to do with him. So, she existed now as a separate social individual. It was for her to answer this note without regard to him. He had even no right to interfere. His heart was hard and angry. 
You had to do it behind our backs, had you, he said with a sneer, and her heart leapt with hot pain. She knew she was free. She had broken away from him. He was beaten. You said, let her try, she retorted, almost apologizing to him. He did not hear. He sat looking at the letter. Education office, Kingston on Thames, and then the typewritten Miss Ursula Brangwen, Yew Tree Cottage, Coste. It was all so complete and so final, he could not but feel the new position Ursula held. As recipient of that letter, it was an iron in his soul. Well, he said at length, you're not going. Ursula started and could find no words to clamor her revolt. If you think you're going dancing off to the other side of London, you're mistaken. Why not, she cried, as once hard fixed in her will to go. That's why not, he said. And there was silence till Mrs. Brangwen came downstairs. Look here, Anna, he said, handing her the letter. Put back her head, seeing a typewritten letter, anticipating trouble from the outside world. There was the curious sliding motion of her eyes, as if she shut off her sentence maternal self in a kind of hard trance meaningless took its place thus meaningless she glanced over the letter careful not to take it in she apprehended the contents with her callous superficial mind her feeling self was shut down what post is it she asked she wants to go and be a teacher in kingston on thames at fifty pounds a year oh indeed the mother spoke as if it were a hostile fact concerning some stranger. She would have let her go, one out of callousness. Mrs. Brangwen would begin to grow up again only with her youngest child. Her eldest girl was in the way now. She's not going all that distance, said the father. I have to go where they want me, cried Ursula, and it's a good place to go to. What do you know about the place, said her father harshly, and it doesn't matter whether they want you or not. If your father says you are not to go, said the mother calmly. How Ursula hated her. You said I was to try, the girl cried. Now I've got a place and I'm going to go. You're not going all that distance, said her father. Why don't you get a place in Eccleston where you can live at home, asked Benjamin, who hated conflicts, who could not understand Ursula's uneasy way, yet who must stand by her sister. There aren't any places in Eccleston, cried Ursula, and I'd rather go right away. If you'd asked about it, a place could have been got for you in Eccleston, but you had to play in this high and mighty and go your own way, said her father. I've no doubt you'd rather go right away, said her mother very caustic. And I've no doubt you'd find other people didn't put up with you for very long either. You've too much opinion of yourself for your own good. Between the girl and her mother was a feeling of pure hatred. There came a stubborn silence. Ursula knew she must break it. Well, they've written to me, and I still have to go, she said. Where will you get the money from, asked her father. Uncle Tom will give it to me, she said. Again, there was silence. This time, she was triumphant. Then, at length, her father lifted his head. His face was abstracted. He seemed to be abstracting himself to make a pure statement. Well, you're not going all that distance away, he said. I'll ask Miss Burt about a place here. I'm not going to have you by yourself at the other side of London. But I've got to go to Kingston, said Ursula. They've sent for me. They'll do without you, he said. There was a trembling silence when she was on the point of tears. Well, she said low and tense. 
you can put me off this, but I'm going to a place. I'm not going to stop at home. Nobody wants you to stop at home, he suddenly shouted, going livid with rage. She said no more. Her nature had gone hard and smiling in its own arrogance, in its own antagonistic indifference to the rest of them. This was the state at which he wanted to kill her. She went singing into the parlor. During the next days, Ursula went about bright and hard, singing to herself, making love to the children, but her soul hard and cold with regard to her parents. Nothing more was said. The hardness and brightness lasted for four days. Then it began to break up. So at evening, she said to her father, Have you spoken about a place for me? I spoke to Mr. Burt. What did he say? There's a committee meeting tomorrow. He'll tell me on Friday. So she waited until Friday. Kingston-on-Thames had been an exciting dream. Here she could feel the hard new reality. She knew that this would come to pass. Because nothing was ever fulfilled, she found, except in the hard limited reality. She said not want to be a teacher in Iggleston because she knew Iggleston and hated it, but she wanted to be free, so she must take her freedom where she could. On Friday, her father said there was a place vacant on Brinsley Street School. This could most probably be secured for her at once without the trouble of application. Her heart halted. Brinsley Street was a school in a poor quarter, and she had a taste of the common children at Eagleston. They had shouted after her and thrown stones. Still, as a teacher, she would be an authority. And it was all unknown. She was excited. The very forest of dry, sterile brick had some fascination for her. It was so hard and ugly, so relentlessly ugly, it would purge her of some of her floating sentimentality. She dreamed how she would make the little, ugly children love her. She would be so personal. Teachers were always so hard and impersonal. There was no vivid relationship. She would make everything personal and vivid, and she would give herself. She would give, give, give all her great stores of wealth to her children. She would make them so happy, and they would prefer her to any teacher on the face of the earth. At Christmas, she would choose such fascinating Christmas cards for them, and she would give them such a happy party in one of the classrooms. The headmaster, Mr. Harvey, was a short, thick-set, rather common man, she thought. But she would hold before him the light of grace and refinement. He would have her in such high esteem before long. She would be the gleaming sun of the school. The children would blossom like little weeds. The teachers, like tall, hard plants, would burst into rare flower. The Monday morning came. It was the end of September, and a drizzle of fine rain like veils round her, making her seem intimate, a world to herself. She walked forward to the new land. The old was blotted out. The veil would be rent that hid the new world. She was gripped hard with suspense as she went down the hill in the rain, carrying her dinner bag. Through the thin rain, she saw the town, a black, extensive mount. She must enter in upon it. She felt at once a feeling of repugnance and of excited fulfillment, but she shrank. Waited at the terminus for the tram. Here it was, beginning. Before her was the station at Nottingham, whence Teresa had gone to school half an hour before. Behind her was the little church school she had attended when she was a child, when her grandmother was alive. Her grandmother had been dead two years now. There was a strange woman at the marsh with her uncle Fred, and a small baby. Behind her was Cosse, 
and blackberries were ripe on the hedges. As she waited for the tram terminus, she reverted swiftly to her childhood, her teasing grandfather with his beard and blue eyes, and his big monumental body. He had got drowned. Her grandmother, whom Ursula would sometimes say she had loved more than anyone else in the world, the little church school, the Phillips boys, one was a soldier of the lifeguards now, one was a collier. With a passion, she clung to the past. But as she dreamed of it, she heard the tram car grinding round a bend, rumbling dully. She saw it draw into sight and hum nearer. It sidled round the loop at the terminus and came to a standstill looming above her. Some shadowy gray people stepped from the far end. The conductor was walking in the puddles, swinging round the pole. He mounted into the wet, comfortless tram, whose floor was dark with wet, whose windows were all steamed, and she sat in suspense. It had begun her new existence. One other passenger mounted, a sort of charwoman with a drab wet coat. Ursula could not bear the waiting of the tram. The bell clanged. There was a lurch forward. The car moved cautiously down the wet street. She was being carried forward into her new existence. Her heart burned with pain and suspense, as if something were cutting her liver tissue. Often, oh, often, the tram seemed to stop, and wet, cloaked people mounted and sat mute and gray in stiff rows opposite her, their umbrellas between their knees. The windows of the tram grew more steamy, opaque. She was shut in with these unliving, spectral people. Even yet, it did not occur to her that she was one of them. The conductor came down, issuing tickets. Each little ring of his clipper sent a pang of dread through her, but her ticket surely was different from the rest. They were all going to work. She also was going to work. Her ticket was the same. She sat trying to fit in with them, but fear was at her bowels. She felt an unknown, terrible grip upon her. At Bath Street, she must dismount and change trams. She looked uphill. It seemed to lead to freedom. She remembered the many Saturday afternoons she had walked up to the shops. How free and careless she had been. Ah, her tram was sliding gingerly downhill. She dreaded every yard of her conveyance. The car halted. She mounted hastily. She kept turning her head as the car ran on, because she was uncertain of the street. At last, her heart a flame of suspense, trembling, she rose. The conductor rang the bell brusquely. She was walking down a small, mean, wet street, empty of people. The school squatted low within its railed asphalt yard that shone black with rain. The building was grimy and horrible. Dry plants were shadowily licking through the windows. She entered the arched doorway of the porch. The whole place seemed to have threatening expression imitating the church's architecture for the purpose of domineering like a gesture of vulgar authority. She saw that one pair of feet had paddled across the flagstone floor of the porch. The place was silent, deserted, like an empty prison waiting the return of tramping feet. Ursula went forward to the teacher's room that burrowed in a gloomy hole. She knocked timidly. Come in, called a surprised man's voice as from a prison cell. She entered the dark little room that never got any sun. The gas was lighted naked and raw. At the table, a thin man in shirt sleeves was rubbing a paper on a jelly tray. He looked up at Ursula with his narrow, sharp face, said, Good morning, then turned away again and stripped the paper off the tray. 
glancing at the violet-colored writing transferred before he dropped the curled sheet aside among a heap. Ursula watched him, fascinated. In the gaslight and gloom, and the narrowness of the room, all seemed unreal. Isn't it a nasty morning, she said. Yes, he said. It's not much of weather. But in here it seemed that neither morning nor weather really existed. This place was timeless. Spoke in an occupied voice, like an echo. Ursula did not know what to say. She took off her waterproof. Am I early? she asked. The man looked first at a little clock, then at her. His eyes seemed to be sharp to needlepoints of vision. Twenty-five past, he said. You're the second to come. I'm first this morning. Ursula sat down gingerly on the edge of the chair and watched his thin red hands rubbing away on the white surface of the paper, then pausing, pulling up a corner of the sheet, peering, and rubbing away again. There was a great heap of curled white and scribbled sheets on the table. Must you do so many? asked Ursula. Again, the man glanced up sharply. He was about thirty or thirty-three years, old, thin, greenish, with a long nose and a sharp face. His eyes were blue and sharp as points of steel, rather beautiful, the girl thought. Sixty-three, he answered. So many, she said gently. Then she remembered. But they're not all for your class, are they? she added. Why aren't they? he replied, a fierceness in his voice. Ursula was rather frightened by his mechanical ignoring of her and his directness of statement. It was something new to her. She had never been treated like this before, as if she did not count, as if she were addressing a machine. It is too many, she said sympathetically. You'll get about the same, he said. That was all she received. She sat rather blank, not knowing how to feel. Still, she liked him. He seemed so cross. There was a queer, sharp, keen-edged feeling about him that attracted her and frightened her at the same time. It was so cold and against his nature. The door opened, and a short, neutral-tinted young woman of about twenty-eight appeared. Oh, Ursula, the newcomer exclaimed, you are here early. My word, I'll warrant you don't keep it up. That's Mr. Williamson's peg. This is yours. Standard five teacher always has this. Aren't you going to take your hat off? Miss Violet Harvey removed Ursula's waterproof from the peg on which it was hung to one a little farther down the row. She had already snatched the pins from her own stuff hat and jammed them through her coat. She turned to Ursula as she pushed up her frizzled, flat, dun-colored hair. Isn't it a beastly morning, she exclaimed, beastly, and if there's one thing I hate above another, it's a wet Monday morning. Pack of kids trailing in any no-know-how and no holding them. She had taken a black pinafore from a newspaper package and was trying it around her waist. You've bought an apron, haven't you? She said, jerkily glancing at Ursula. Oh, you'll want one. You've no idea what a sight you'll look before half past four. What with chalk and ink and kids' dirty feet? Well, I can send a boy down to Mama's for one. Oh, it doesn't matter, said Ursula. Oh, yes, I can send easily, cried Miss Harvey. Ursula's heart sank. Everybody seemed so cocksure and so bossy. How was she going to get on with such jolty, jerky, bossy people? And Miss Harvey had not spoken a word to the man at the table. She simply ignored him. Ursula felt the callous, crude rudeness between the two teachers. The two girls went out into the passage. A few children were already clattering in the porch. Jim Richards, called Miss Harvey, hard and authoritative. A boy came sheeplessly forward. 
Shall you go down to our house for me, eh? said Miss Harvey in a commanding, condescending, coaxing voice. She did not wait for an answer. Go down and ask Mama to send me one of my school pennants for Mrs. Brangwen. Shall you? The boy muttered a sheepish yes, miss, and was moving away. Hey, called Miss Harvey, come here. Now what are you going for? What shall you say to Mama? A school pinna, muttered the boy. Please, Mrs. Harvey, Miss Harvey said, will you send her another school pinna for Miss Brangwen because she has come without one? Yes, Miss, muttered the boy, head ducked and was moving off. Miss Harvey caught him back, holding him by the shoulder. What are you going to say? Please, Mrs. Harvey, Miss Harvey wants a penny for Miss Brangwen, muttered the boy very sheepishly. Miss Brangwen, laughed Miss Harvey, pushing him away. Here, you'd better have my umbrella. Wait a minute. The unwilling boy was rigged up with Miss Harvey's umbrella and set off. Don't take long over it, called Miss Harvey after him. Then she turned to Ursula and said brightly, Oh, he's a caution, that lad, but not bad, you know. No, Ursula agreed weakly. The latch of the door clicked and they entered the big room. Ursula glanced down the place. Its rigid, long silence was official and chilling. Halfway down was a glass partition, the doors of which were open. A clock ticked, re-echoing, and Miss Harvey's voice sounded double as she said, This is the big room, standard five, six, and seven. Here's your place, five. She stood in the near end of the great room. There was a small high teacher's desk facing a squadron of long benches, two high windows in the wall opposite. End of section 38, recording by Petal Pop.